Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Christina Cho, and this is STEAM the Podcast, where I get to talk to amazing women and other underrepresented minorities in the fields of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and the arts, or STEAM, and highlight the brilliant work they do and talk about the ways we can make STEAM truly more inclusive, equitable, and diverse. Some of the people I will talk to I've known for a while, while others I'm meeting for the first time in front of this microphone. In this first season, we're going to cover topics and issues that women and URMs face when they enter and navigate the world of STEAM. Issues like landing and crushing an interview, building a network and finding mentors, managing conflict and fighting bias, maintaining work-life balance, and preventing burnout. Through personal stories and practical advice, we hope that you will form the skill sets you need to enter, survive, and thrive in STEAM. To start off the season, I will be talking to two brilliant women about their exciting and unique careers and talk about how to get your foot in the door and land that interview. But before I introduce our guests, I wanted to take a moment to introduce Project Steamed, the team behind Steam the Podcast. Project Steamed is a group of scientists, educators, and artists from all walks of life and career paths, volunteering their time and many, many talents to help you build your dream Steam career. The team consists of the following extraordinary, multi-talented people. My co-founder and dear friend, T. Baudry, a scientist, pianist, and voiceover artist, Also, the one who came up with the idea of turning our multifaceted and complex conversations into a podcast. Brian Kelly, our lead sound engineer, producer, and owner of Echo Station Recording, where we are currently recording this podcast. David James Pugo, our music supervisor and composer, also the president of the Boyle Heights Neighborhood Council, and our advisors and writers, Dr. Naomi Phillip, Scientist at Alexion, Dr. Sandhya Prabhakaran, Research Fellow in Applied Statistics and Machine Learning at Moffitt Cancer Center, Dr. Courtney Schmidt, Staff Scientist at the Narangasset Bay Estuary Program, and last but not least, Emily Chu, Educator and Senior Program Officer for Education and Arts for the Yale China Association. We are funded by the Women in STEM Leadership Program at the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science. So let's get back to today's episode. Landing that interview. There are many different types of careers in STEAM, some traditional, like being an engineer or mathematician, and others not so traditional, like being a science writer or consultant. But they all start with the interview. But how do you land an interview when you don't have social capital? Looking at hiring data, the stats are clear. When it comes to landing an initial interview, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Approximately two-thirds of jobs are never posted, and three-quarters of job seekers find jobs through their networks. So, if you don't have a direct or even indirect connection for a specific industry, you might have a hard time even hearing about a job opening, let alone get an interview. Research from LinkedIn found that 70% of people were hired at a company where they already had a connection in place. And at more desirable companies like Fortune 500 companies or big name brand institutions, 95% of people landed the job because of connections. 
I mean, we see this in college applications too. Legacy, having a parent who's an alumni, gives you an extra point and improves your chances of getting in. I know, I know it sounds super lame that you might not even get a chance of getting an interview, not because you're not capable or talented, but because you just don't know the right people. But there are ways to land that interview, even without all the connections. And we are going to tell you how. And by listening to this podcast and joining us at Project Steamed, you are building your network. Remember, every guest on the show and every team member on Project Steamed is in the directory of Steaminist on our website, ready and willing to help you build social capital. For today's episode, I will be talking to Dr. Catherine Wu, staff writer for The Atlantic, and Dr. Courtney Schmidt, a staff scientist at the Narragansett Bay Estuary Program. We'll talk about how they ended up with the exciting careers they have, the challenges and joys that they've experienced while getting their jobs, and share with you some helpful tips and advice on how to land the interview for the job that you want. We'll end the show with some pointers on how to write a killer cover letter and make your resume stand out, and how cold calling and cold emailing people can help you learn about potential job openings and request an interview. So let's get started. Dr. Catherine Wu is an award-winning writer for The Atlantic, where she writes about science and health. Dr. Wu is a prolific writer who covers a wide range of topics, from the mating rituals of male Santa Marta harlequin toads to the underlying reasons behind America's struggle with vaccinations against COVID-19. Dr. Wu received her Bachelor of Arts and Master of Science degrees in human biology from Stanford University and her PhD in microbiology and immunobiology from Harvard University. Towards the end of her graduate career, Dr. Wu completed a Mass Media Science and Engineering Fellowship with the American Association for the Advancement of Science, where she published 60 articles in Smithsonian Magazine. After her fellowship, she joined the public broadcasting station, PBS, where she worked as a digital editor for the television show Nova, where she wrote, reported, and edited science, technology, and innovation news and features. Prior to joining The Atlantic, Dr. Wu worked as a science reporting fellow for The New York Times and as an early career fellow for The Open Notebook. In addition to being a staff writer for The Atlantic, Dr. Wu serves as a senior producer of Story Collider and as senior editor for The Open Notebook. As a staff scientist for the Narragansett Bay Estuary Program, NBEP, Dr. Courtney Schmidt manages scientific projects that aim to keep the waters and environment clean for the people who live, work, and play in the Narragansett Bay region. Dr. Schmidt received her Bachelor of Science degree in Marine Science and Biology from the University of Tampa and her Master's of Science and PhD degrees in Oceanography from the University of Rhode Island. Throughout her academic and professional career, Dr. Schmidt received several grants and awards and published over 16 peer-reviewed scientific articles and technical reports. In addition to her work as a scientist, Dr. Schmidt manages the internship program for undergraduate and graduate students at NBEP, mentoring and inspiring the next generation of oceanographers, ecologists, and climate scientists. Courtney and Catherine, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you both here. Hello, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Before we get into our conversation about landing job interviews, I thought it'd be really great to have our listeners get to know you two a little bit better. So Catherine, let's start with you. You wanna say hi to our listeners and share a bit about yourself and the work that you do? Sure, Uh, yeah. um, 
as Christina just mentioned, I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic. I've been there for about a year and a half. And when I was in grad school, I specialized in bacteriology, which is a very different world than the one I've been covering these past couple of years, mostly viruses. Very cool. And Courtney, it's your turn. Please introduce yourself to our listeners and share a bit about yourself. Hi, all. I have been with the Narragansett Bachelor Program for eight years now, and it's been an evolving job that I started doing a lot of data synthesis, and now I'm moving towards science management. So I'm moving from doing science to managing science. Very cool. I'm so glad to have you guys both. Um, so Catherine, as you said earlier, you went to school and have multiple degrees in the biological sciences, yet now you're an award-winning science writer. So what inspired you to switch gears from being a microbiologist to science writer? Yeah, uh, I mean, I had always really loved writing, though, interestingly, I sort of got my start in writing in fiction writing when I was a little kid. I just really liked reading stories, and so I wanted to produce stories. Um, and I didn't really start liking science until college, actually. So I was kind of a late bloomer in that respect. And those two worlds always existed very distinctly in my head. No one really clued me into the idea that science could also be creative and about storytelling. And so I felt like I had to pick one. Um, it wasn't really until grad school that I started hearing about careers where the two could come together. And it wasn't just like writing textbooks. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I started going to some science communication conferences. I did the AAAS Mass Media Fellowship that you mentioned earlier. And I liked it so much, you know, more than I even expected to, that I decided to just try it as a career after I got my PhD and figured I will keep doing this until I fail out or start hating it. And that was <laughs> four years ago. So, We'll see. It could still be time for <laughs> to switch out. So, Courtney, how about you? Who or what inspired you to become an environmental scientist? So uh, it's a little bit of family and a little bit of where I grew up. So I, I kind of joke that I come from a long line of farmers. I grew up outside New York City, so it's kind of hard to imagine that. But um, my mother's family was there for a number of years before it was actually, you know, the suburban New Jersey everyone knows and loves. And I also grew up near the Meadowlands, which for anyone who follows football knows that the Giants and Jets play at a stadium there. And it's an urban estuary. If you, there are places there where if you're on a boat or walking out on a pier, if you don't know where you are without looking up, you just feel like you're in another another world. It's all these tall reeds, tall hills, there's water, fish. And it was just inspiring to be like, okay, there's this all this chunk of nature inside one of the most densely populated areas in the world. Well, shouldn't this be important too? So shouldn't we protect that and think about that? And so that's between that and then conversations with my family about how do we steward the planet? That's kind of where we all started and I never let it go. Mm, that's really cool. I think even with our last guest, there was a lot of like um, inspiration from like family and the people in your life. And I think that's uh, for a lot of people, the people who you surround yourself with do kind of influence who you are, but also just the environment, right? Like physical environment, but also like the communities you're in, the schools you're in, it does really play into like the path you'll end up choosing. Um, so Catherine, 
I think people would say that your career is like non-traditional, quote unquote, for someone who has these degrees in the biological sciences. And so was it hard for you to transition from academia to science writing? Yes and no. I think I got very, very, very lucky, uh, which is something that you've already alluded to. I was lucky enough to be connected with the right people to sort of already have a foot in the door. And I kept meeting people and reaching out to people that, you know, it turned out that I quickly got a series of jobs that I was actually pretty excited about. And I feel like I kind of landed my dream job within just a few years of starting this path. Um, But, you know, I, I guess I will say that for an academic, certainly my path is unusual. Uh, This is certainly not like the classic tenure track professor thing. Um, But for a science journalist, I don't know if there is a really typical path, which is kind of great um, in some ways. Uh, I have colleagues, um, you know, at other publications, especially who have similar backgrounds to mine, did the similar thing where they did uh, the classically trained scientist thing first, then left academia for journalism. I also have incredible colleagues who, you know, have um, years of training in the world of journalism and sort of fell into covering science. And, you know, they have very different training than I do. Uh, We all had to sort of learn by making a lot of mistakes. And my mistakes were not the same as their mistakes or, you know, sometimes you did make the same mistakes. But um, it's been really interesting to learn from them and to sort of I don't know, have to unlearn some of the things from classic academic training to become a journalist. Yeah, I can imagine that. Like when I read your articles, they don't read like a, a an article I get from like cancer research or nature. They're a lot funnier <laughs> and, and wittier. And uh, like, I, I feel like I'm learning, but not like this heavy, boring kind of <laughs> technical thing. Um I think it's tor- it's storytelling, and that's the exciting part. Yeah, and I think we could learn a lot from science journalists as scientists how to like write in a way that's fun to read. <laughs> um, so, how about you, Courtney? Why did you choose to work for an organization like NBEP instead of a traditional academic career? So, like postdoc to professorship, like that. Um, so it's kind of similar to Catherine's in the fact that I fell backwards into a lot of different things. So I was not a traditional student in that I didn't go directly from undergrad to graduate. And in those three years between, I had two separate jobs, one for a consulting firm and one for um, a national nonprofit. And so I walked into graduate school with an idea that there's a whole other world of careers out there. And the challenge of graduate school is that it really trains you for that postdoc perspective professorship career. And as Catherine mentioned, you just kind of find these niches and things that don't fit. And sometimes they work out to be really great things. And that's kind of how I ended up working for the estuary program is that I was looking for something that kept me in the Providence, Boston area. And then to be geographically limited, I had to be open to everything else that came my way. So that meant any job, anywhere, doing anything that I was remotely qualified for and just kind of falling backwards into things and hoping things worked out. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think there's this pressure, um, even at a young age, for people to know exactly what they want to do with their lives. And 
especially for those who are interested in STEAM fields, there's this expectation that people will get their degrees and stay in academia to eventually become some kind of professor. I mean, that is the like traditional career path for people with STEAM degrees. But statistics show that only like three to 5% of PhD holders actually become professors. And 70% of young researchers. So these are people who don't always have PhDs. They can have other degrees. Um, They find jobs outside of academia, like in industry, government, or nonprofit organizations. And also in my experience, like from high school all the way to graduate school, most academic programs don't seem to provide too much guidance on how to land non-traditional jobs. So like Catherine was saying this earlier, I knew that science writers existed because uh, I took a course in college where I had to read the New York Times science section that came out like every Tuesday to do the summary reports. But I didn't know like how you become that person. Um, and as a graduate student, it was pretty clear that the right choice, quote unquote, was to stay in academia and do a postdoc. And for me, like I love the academic environment, but for a lot of my friends, this was not what they wanted, but there was no guidance. And most of my mentors didn't have connections in industry or government. And so even if I was interested, there would have been very few people I could have gone for advice. So I think it's super cool and really great that both of you have what's considered like a non-traditional career for someone with a STEAM degree, because I think it's super important to let our listeners know that having a STEAM degree opens up doors to all sorts of careers. You don't have to work in a research laboratory or a university, all because you're in STEAM. You can become a writer or a conservationist. You can really do anything. So Courtney, two questions. One, how did you hear about NBP? You kind of talked about that a little bit. And two, you joined NBP essentially straight out of graduate school. Like, and as a fresh grad, like, how did you know you were ready to enter the job market? Um, so how did I hear about NBP? This is actually kind of funny. Is um, The asteroid program used to be housed at my graduate school. And next door to my office was the staff scientist. I was a chief scientist, he was called. And there was some things going on and he said, they're probably going to be offering my job up again. You should take a look. Okay. Uh, I was, it was like a year and a half before I actually got the job. And so as I was looking, um, it popped up. I forget if it was on a classic, you know, server, like an Indeed style search engine or one of the many listservs that are out there. Um, But when it did, I actually um, applied twice the first time. I didn't even get an interview. And then the second time, I did get the interview and then got the job. So straight out of graduate school, there's a little bit of like, if I knew I was right into the job market versus more training, it really boiled down to I didn't feel I had that option. And I actually was also offered a postdoc. So I had two competing offers, which is a very rare position to be in. It was a very lucky position. And I had to sit down and say, okay, if I do a postdoc, it's short term and I'm going to have to do this again. Mm-hmm. It was 2014. We were you know, still kind of struggling with that recession, not really sure if science money was there. 
And then I had this job with the asteroid program, which was while funded through the federal government, so a little bit soft money, it's a little bit firmer than grant money because they would have to defund the entire Clean Water Act to take out the money that pays the asteroid program through the EPA. And so I chose that option. Was I prepared? Oh, that no. <laughs> and it's a lot of what you said is, is you're prepared for that more training as a postdoc. And here I was slightly beyond a postdoc. I was supposed to be the expert in the room. Um, I struggled to figure out how to you know, manage myself. I was so used to having a couple of professors above me, used to having this whole swash of people all around me. And now all of a sudden it's like, so Courtney, what do you think? I, I don't know. Um, so a lot of hiccups, a lot of fits and starts, and it, you know, got my feet under me and just kind of went with it and just hoped I landed okay. My hope was that I gave myself about a year. Okay. And so if they did not like me and they fired me <laughs> or said, no, this isn't for you, I still had the experience. Um, and I wasn't too far beyond that postdoc, post-PhD training period. So I could slide right back in and try a different path. Wow. So you like really learned on your feet. Yes. Yeah. Um, just kind of fell in and really sink or swim and hoped I could learn how to swim on the way down. Wow. Um, so I guess this this is a similar question for Catherine. Um, you talked about, and I also mentioned that you did a fellowship with the AAAS. And how did that influence or impact your decision or help you become a science journalist? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny listening to Courtney's experiences because there's more similarities than I would have originally guessed. Uh, I did that AAAS fellowship my final year of grad school, really just to, gosh, I got back and I think I defended five wow. weeks later. So <laughs> um, it truly was right at the tail end. And so actually before I did that fellowship, I had already gone on a bunch of postdoc interviews. I had a soft offer that I was super excited about accepting. And I went on the fellowship thinking like, I'm going to do this this summer. It's going to set me up to maybe freelance sometimes while I'm postdocing and it's going to be great, but I'm going to do the whole academia thing. But I loved the fellowship so much that at the end of the summer, I, I honestly thought, oh crap, like I, I think I want to uh, switch out of this, but I was terrified. Like I had soft accepted that offer. I was like getting ready to literally move to another city and start a new position and, you know, seeking another job elsewhere meant starting with a completely clean slate. You know, I had the work that I had done that summer. I knew that I liked it, but that was, you know, two-ish months. What if I did it for another three months and I hated it? So kind of similar to Courtney, I like said, you know what, I will try this. If it goes horribly this first year, um, if I can't get hired or if I crash and burn or if I, it turns out that, you know, this is just not for me or I make a huge mistake, I guess I can go crawling back <laughs> to academia. Yes, academia is always um, welcoming more people. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I mean, because the window is so tight, it right? Is. Like after you get your PhD, you've got that really tight window in which you can apply for grants. And if you don't start your postdoc quite quickly after, like you kind of age out of the window in which you're eligible for a lot of money. And so I knew those first few months after I defended, I really had to be thinking on my feet, like, do I really like this? Am I committed to this? 
And I just think back to having enough privilege to be able to take the riskier decision and not panic about like, will this financially imperil me? Um, you know, all those sorts of things. And I was lucky enough to find a job in the city where I was already living. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked out. Yeah. I think a mentor of mine once said that luck is really hard work plus opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you you guys both worked really hard in your academic careers to set yourself up to get this degree. And then a lot of the other things that happened with your jobs are a little bit luck, but really it's like you guys were also looking and talking to people. So that, that kind of leads me to my next question for Catherine. Since most of your academic career was in the biological sciences, how did you find mentors um, in science journalism and who are your references when you applied for your job? Yeah, so I was lucky in that I had made some connections while in okay. grad school. Like I started working for Story Collider, mm-hmm. which is a science storytelling series. And so some people there were already writers or journalists. Um, and they were able to give me some advice. I'd gone to a couple science communication conferences and met a couple people, but my network. My network was really sparse Mm -hmm. early on. Um, I think I was lucky enough to be in a city, Boston, where there was both journalism and academia going on. But, you know, certainly I was not able to turn to my academic advisor and be like, (laughs) hey, hook me up. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I had done some student organizations in Mm -hmm. grad school that had done a lot of science communication. That was kind of how I got my feet wet, you know, even before I did that fellowship. But most people there weren't connected either. You know, we hadn't had any significant training in grad school to learn how to write, how to network, how to talk to an audience other than our fellow academic (laughs) peers. So it was really hard. I mean, truly, I went to someone I knew in the area who was working for Nova at PBS. And I was like, hey, do you think they'd be willing to hire me? And that's how I got that job. Um, and so because I knew someone there, uh, that was kind of the reference I was able to get. Um, and I certainly cannot pretend that most transitions are that simple. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to literally who you know. Again, the whole point of this yeah. project and this podcast is to really help people like our listeners build social capital, which is literally who you know. And if you're not in the right environment, like the right city, or if you're not already in academia, or your next door neighbor happens to work for the group that you're interested in, you might have a hard time even hearing about opportunities or getting references. So, you know, I think it's really important that you continue reaching out to people. If there's something you're passionate about or interested in, you know, join social groups. You know, there might be... Um, someone at school who's interested in the same thing. You can make your own group if there's no group yet. Um, And you can, you know, contact people now on LinkedIn and, you know, even social media, you can tweet somebody and be like, hey, I really like the job you do. Can I get some advice? One thing I've learned over the years is that people like to talk about themselves. And so while it feels super awkward for us to be like, hey, can I pick your brain about what you do? They actually really like it. Um, It was funny when you were saying like the who you know. I, in my job, was pretty much down the street from where I did graduate work. So I came in with a lot of that network Catherine talked about that if I didn't know something, I knew who to call. 
and that's pretty classic in my in in the Rhode Island area. So uh, it's a small area, so people tend to know everybody, and it takes you like when you get in, you get in kind of thing. Um, so that's actually super useful, but because I had done my degree there and did my work with those people, it built a little bit of that capital once I got in my job. Um, but that, you know, getting into it, as you said, is that's that's the hard part right? because of just how we structure the academic world versus the world Catherine and I live in. Right. And I mean, I... I will say it is really, really difficult, cold emailing, (laughs) cold messaging people. A lot of people will not respond. And while that has been, I think, fruitful in some cases, you know, the hit rate is Mm -hmm. low and some of the most powerful connections are the ones you can still make in person if you have the opportunity to do so. So, you know, my fellowship that I did, I am still really close with some of the fellows that year. Um, You know, two of them I talked to pretty much every single day. And they are also both working journalists. Um, And I think, you know, that has been like, uh, you know, it's not just about finding mentors, but finding a a peer network as well. Yeah, I think it really, I mean, I think there's like a repetitive theme here. There's a lot of luck. There's a lot of privilege. There's a lot of the right time and right space. Um, But there's also like, don't feel discouraged. Okay. (laughs) All because you're not in yet doesn't mean you can't get in. Um, you know, there are so many different ways to connect with people now, especially since the pandemic, a lot of things have become remote. And um, I just read an article about how Gen Z like really knows how to utilize social media and like the internet um, at a whole other skill level in terms of connections. And so, um, yeah, if you can find out about workshops and fellowships and summer programs, you know, do it, meet people in person. Um, And also, if you're one of those young folk who are much better at social media than I am, (laughs) um, use that skill set, make connections everywhere you can. So I want to go a little bit more into detail right now, but like, Courtney, I think your job is pretty amazing, like working to protect our waters and keep them clean so like we can live, you know, Um, so cool. Like, how much do you love your job? Yeah, I'm not going to say I don't love my job because I do. I ended up in a really great position. And it's funny that you're talking about um, just all these things that come together. And Catherine spoke about, you know, how she liked writing fiction as a child when I started, I was asked to do a presentation, basically, like, how did I get there? And when you start pit, like piecing all of these little pieces together, you're like, oh, yeah, this job really was for me, which is really cool. Um, so, yes, I do love my job. And I end up working with, I don't know, hundreds of people every year who are super passionate about their work and they're from you know the local community groups that everybody knows all the way up to the federal agencies and just you know everything in between and it's such a fun fun group of people to be around and Catherine your words and articles impact so many people in a way that scientific papers cannot. So you essentially make science accessible and relatable. And as a scientist, especially 
during the COVID pandemic. I really appreciate the work that you do because it can be frustrating as a scientist to try to like relay information to the general public who's like, you're talking nonsense. Um, are you happy that you pursued this like really cool career in scientific journalism? I am, uh, though, you know, I'll caveat that with it's only been a few years and it's been a grueling few years. You know, um, I didn't I, I did not predict the pandemic. <laughs> um, and I think so soon after I, I entered this field, uh, you know, I was expecting like, oh, sometimes I'll get to write about like frogs and like cats and I don't know, weird plants. Um, it was almost ironic that I have spent so much of my time thinking about infectious disease after leaving <laughs> academia so I wouldn't have to think only about infectious <laughs> disease. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I am really grateful for this opportunity. And, you know, as you're saying, it's it's humbling and a huge honor to have such a huge platform. But it's also a really huge responsibility. It's definitely not all fun and games. And certainly not all my articles can even be fun or lighthearted. Um, you know, I'm writing about death. I talk to people who cry on the phone because their jobs are so hard. And sometimes I can't write about science in a positive light. I also have to hold it to account and write about where it goes wrong because, you know, it's it's been a big switch to think about coming from academia. I always felt on the side of science, but now I have to be on the side of mm -hmm. my reader and be a, an objective observer. And that was a big, I think, switch in mentality mm -hmm. for me. Um, and so while I'm always happy and eager to make science more accessible. Um, you know, I think it's just one part of a, a really difficult job where the demands are always really changing. So I think compared to my life as a scientist, uh, the highs are higher, but the lows can be lower mm, too. That's a really interesting way to, like, I never thought about it like that, but you're right. The pen has a lot of power. And it's also, you know, you just, the, what we do is hard. Yeah. So whether you're trying to absorb a ton of science to make it accessible or trying to convince people that, you know, you kind of need that water or different things, it's hard. It's not always easy. And as, as Catherine, Catherine's job, I think, is probably one of the hardest yeah. that we have in the world because she has to take super geeks like me and humanize us. Mm-hmm. And put a face to those nameless, crazy words that we're making people understand. Um, and I think that's, you know, Catherine, you know, what Catherine mentioned is kind of like the hardest part of my job is actually putting a face to it because I think that makes it a bit easier. And so inside the pandemic, it's been harder because my job is an in person job. I'm always out, always moving. But when you can't be face to face, it's really hard to be like, hey, you know, we're all in this together. We're just looking at it from different angles. And I think that's where Catherine's job is super important because she can be that objective person, as challenging as it must be based on her own scientific experience. Yeah, this is this is such a great conversation. And um, it's just, I think it's really good to hear about the highs and lows of any job, right? You don't want to... Um, romanticize an, a, a job so much that you don't know what you get into and then be like disappointed or heartbroken. But I think 
in general, any career um, has its pros and cons. But if you're passionate and you're excited, you can, I think, deal with some of the lows a little bit better than being forced into a job or a position that you never really wanted to be in. Because then when the lows come, you don't have like the emotional wherewithal to be like, I got, I can handle this. Okay. I'm doing it because I love this other part. I'll ignore this part for now, you know? Yeah. So this question is for both of you. What advice do you have uh, for people who want to use their degrees to pursue these like different types of careers outside of just academia? All right. Well, I'll start. Um, I think the best advice is just to kind of listen to yourself and see where you fit because when you start out in grad school or college, you're 18, 19, 20, you might finish in your mid thirties. You still have a lot of life left. So if you're miserable, it makes for a really long life and really challenge. Um, I guess a couple things, you know, one is if you decide to take a path you weren't expecting, um, you know, one that's really brave and really great. But also if you decide it was not something you ultimately wanted to do, you can change again. Uh, don't be afraid to do that. You're not locking yourself into like an alternative career forever. You can even go back into academia, <laughs> but it's definitely worth trying. Otherwise you will never know. Um, the other thing that I think about a lot is, you know, as, as important as it is, um, as Christina mentioned, to really pursue something that you're passionate about in terms of subject matter and day-to-day -day work and like the ultimate goal of a career. It's also really important to surround yourself with really good coworkers and mentors. Like that is something that can make a job worth doing. And that is a reason that I have left jobs because I wasn't getting that. Like it so very much matters who you work with because, um, you know, the nature of your job may change. Exactly what you work on within that job may change a little bit. But if you have supportive coworkers and you feel like you have people to turn to, that can make all the difference. Let's like get a little bit more into some basic guidelines and tips to help people land an interview. And we've already talked about connections and networking and going in person and meeting people, but also utilizing online sources. And in terms of, um, you know, just people wise, it seems like we've talked about that quite a bit, but things that also are important for a job interview or landing a job interview are some of the harder things like a cover letter and a resume or a CV. And I know when I graduated college, my resume was like trash. So, <laughs> um, and like, I, no one really taught me how to put one together and also a cover letter. Like I didn't even, I never wrote a cover letter until I was about to defend and looking for postdocs. And then I like try to Google cover letters. Um, it was a hot mess. So uh, let's just cover those two things a little bit. So uh, what do you think, you know, uh, are like key features of a strong cover letter like that catches your eye and will get you in the door? I think actually creating a cover letter that shows that you've read the job ad and appropriately peppering the keywords they use. Okay. So there's a lot. Now, now companies use um, 
some machine learning, so computers to kind of scan resumes beforehand and scan cover letters. So you want to make sure that you're using the words they're looking for, Mm. but you also want to make sure that you're using them appropriately and that fits for you. So if you're reading a job ad and says you manage people, you want to use the word manage, but you want to make sure that you truthfully can defend that with your resume, that you have managed people or projects and how you can kind of tweak some of that together. Because the cover letter sometimes is your first and only chance at showing your writing skills. Mm -hmm. And showing that you actually understand what the job entails. And Catherine, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think in my profession, the cover letter is especially important because, you know, applying into a field that is writing, like the cover letter is mm-hmm. a writing sample. You often submit additional writing samples, but this is unedited. It's not being published anywhere and you're writing about yourself. It is another opportunity to show that you can tell a story and tell a compelling story and is not a boilerplate cover letter that could come from anyone else. So that's something that I think about a lot. Um, What can you put into this cover letter that's going to make it memorable and make it really clear that it came from you specifically and not the person who wrote the cover letter that is below yours in the pile? Mm -hmm. Um, If someone read this, could they immediately trace it back to you specifically. Um, I think that's really important. So like those first couple lines, don't just say like, don't describe the job that you're applying to because that could be the top of any cover letter applying to that job. You know, say something about yourself. And another thing is um, don't just regurgitate the resume because, or the CV, whatever it is you're using, because they also have that. Chances are they will look at that. The cover letter is an opportunity to expand on something very specific from that resume or go totally off page with regard to the resume. Um, otherwise, uh, it becomes kind of a, sorry, waste of space. Is <laughs> but like, <laughs> it's, it's a missed opportunity to add another dimension to your application package. Mm. The beauty of a cover letter is that it's supposed to be short, but that's also its challenge. So right, right. having people, I mean, if you're still in school, graduate, undergraduate, use your career center for that. They can help you tailor and make sure that you're sounding uniquely you, that authentic voice. As Catherine said, that is, you have to put yourself on the paper. Um, and it can't be boilerplate. It can't be like you just pulled it off the internet. We've all done that. That's classic. But it can't be that. Um, you want to make sure that you're following their instructions and you're doing so that allows you to shine. So if they give you, you must keep it to one page or one inch margins, give them that. You know, don't try and fudge it because that's not, pl- you know, you almost have to play a little their game, which is frustrating when you want to say a lot, mm-hmm. but it also forces you to just, you know, use your words wisely. And if you can find someone to address the cover letter to and not just put to whom it may concern, that is a bonus. Though, if you're unsure, don't put that on <laughs> That's That's worse. <laughs> so right name or no name, but not like... Yeah, that's that's actually I've read that, too. And I think that is really important. It also has like for the reader, it's nice to hear dear so and so not 
to whom it may concern. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to cover in this episode was the resume. So in academia, we typically use a bio sketch or a curriculum vitae or CV, which is much longer, super detailed. Um, it's a, like a type of resume that's just like pages long. And a lot of jobs, even academic jobs, don't necessarily want to read all that, nor do they really read all that. So a resume is a succinct, better way to go. Do you guys have any tips on how to put together an eye-catching and impressive resume? Honestly, a well-designed, pretty, visually pleasing resume can go really far. You know, if it's cluttered, if like your text is, you know, different fonts and different font sizes in ways that are jarring, it just, you know, if it's easy to read, it really helps and just making sure that like it is presentable and has been you know skimmed by someone you trust like the small details count honestly um and i think that is a very underappreciated part of it also i think you know going from the academic cv to a resume you need to do so much Mm -hmm. cutting and so honestly i suggest rather than cutting down a cv start with a blank page and truly like build from a kernel rather than chipping away at a giant block of marble. Um, (laughs) You want to showcase the most important things and try to lead with the things most relevant to the job that you're applying for. Yeah, this is again a space for your career center Um, because that's what happened to me. I had a CV and environmental nonprofits don't need five pages, (laughs) two at most, and one is better, but the more experience you have, the more more leeway you get on that. But yeah, I had the Career Center basically build it for me. And I should go and look it up, but I've like for the past eight or nine years, I've been using the same resume format because that's what happens. But yeah, you know, start with that, what do you do? And then this is also your spot, depending on your degree, to try and use the words that everyone would understand rather than folks in your own degree path. And so again, having someone at a career center or someone who's in a different department than you, just kind of read over to try and understand. Because remember, you wanna prove to the job that you are the best person. If they don't understand half the things you write about your job, they're gonna be like, you sound like you did cool stuff, but you know, so you're not gonna have one resume or one CV that you're gonna blanket for everything. You're probably gonna end up with one per job or per type of job, because what goes in academic jobs is not the same as nonprofit. And then if you ever go to a federal government job, they have their own website with a resume builder and your resume ends up being longer than your CV because of the information they require. Mm-hmm. So, Targeting where you're going and targeting how you're going to do it is really important. So, yeah, I love that idea from Catherine, just to start with that blank piece of paper and just start over. Stop trying to add, 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 but just get to the heart of what you do and what you're good at. Lots of really good stuff here. Um, But it's like time for us to go. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, listeners... 
I know this is like a really important conversation, but it doesn't just end here. Remember, we have a website where you can get more tips and advice and there are resources and links that can help you get to where you need to go, like your career center at your institution or um, like other tips and tricks to get things together, uh, like formatting your CV. So... I just want to thank you both for joining us today. It was so wonderful hearing your stories and getting to know you. Uh, Yeah, thanks. Thank you for having me. This is a great experience. And thank you, Catherine. This has been fun to work with you on this. Yeah, same to both of you. Thank you so much for the invite. And I hope this is helpful for all listeners. Great to be talking at all of you. (laughs) I, I I think it'll be really helpful. So... Thank you both. I'm so glad you guys are here. And uh, remember, listeners, they're on our Steaminist directory, so you can always reach out to them. So what's next? Now that you know how to land an interview, you might want to know how to crush it. Our next episode will be about how to crush your interview so you land the job of your Steam dreams. Steam the Podcast is brought to you by RSS.com. We're produced by Brian Kelly and Christina Cho with help from T. Badri, Naomi Phillip, Emily Chu, and Sandhya Pabakaran. Our engineer is Brian Kelly at Echo Station Studio, and original music is by David James Pugo. If you like Steam the Podcast, please share it with your friends. Let them know that they can subscribe to Steam the Podcast on RSS.com Community, the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Podcast Index, and Listen Notes. For resources and our directory of Steaminists, check out our website at projectsteamed.org. Thanks for listening and see you all next week.